0: Hi, I'm Doug the Neighbor, and this is my podcast, Doug the Neighbor, coming to you from the Possum Trot Studios here in awesome Austin, Texas. Today is a special day podcast because I have an old friend of mine here that I have known for many, many years and was very instrumental in altering my life so that I ended up In New York City for many years, but now I live in awesome Austin, Texas. But we'll get to our guest here in just a couple of minutes. Let's take care of a little housekeeping. Okay, first off, let's make sure that JoJo Bear is up there overseeing all of the productions. (laughs) He has been with me for many, many years and he is. Excellent at overseeing our production of Doug the Neighbor here on my podcast, Doug the Neighbor Podcast, here in awesome Austin, Texas. So let's check the weather window. As you know, we've had a little bit of rain here in awesome Austin. Let me check the weather window. It has stopped raining, but the frogs are still swimming up. Hill. Okay, the giggling you hear in the background is our guest for today, and we'll get to him in just a half a second. Our sports report today is kind of interesting because I ran into a young gal who uh, plays softball here, and I asked her what her batting average was. Batting average, you know, how many strikes she has, how many hits she has, the basic element of baseball, softball, batting average. And she said, now she is a younger person, younger generation, but she said, we don't care about batting averages. It's all about sportsmanship. I found that a very interesting answer on her part concerning her Batting average was just a, uh, not a critical question, just you playing baseball, softball. What's your batting average? What's your on-base percentage? What's your strikeout ratio? How are you doing in fielding? We don't keep those types of statistics. We're only into the sportsmanship. Folks, podcast listeners, is this the new attitude in sports? Do you keep times in the 100-meter run? We all cross the finish line at the same time because we don't wish to hurt anybody's feelings? Doug the neighbor has a few questions concerning this. I wish my young friend well and her Uh, college softball career, very nice lady, very talented. I saw her play on TV, very talented, but I just wonder about that attitude. I'm all for sportsmanship, but this is something that has happened this week. Please call me, write in, or email me, and let me know your opinions concerning this. Okay, all right. Now, I'd like to introduce you to our guest for today, this gentleman I have known since 1981. Yes, Doug the neighbor is a little older. I live in the age of rust. I'm at that point in my life. But this gentleman, a fine old friend, and he was very instrumental in getting me to move to New York City. I would like to introduce him. His name is Warren Watson. Warren, how are you doing today? And welcome to Doug the Neighbor podcast.
1: Doug, I am so impressed with your podcast. I'm glad to be here.
0: Well, thank you, Warren. I'm glad to have you here. Let's start right off the top. I know you as Billy. Your name is William. How did you get the name
1: Warren? My name is not William. My name is legally Billy Warren Watson on my birth certificate. When I went to the first grade, the teacher said, Oh, all little boys who are Billy are really William. I went home and told my mother my name was William, and she called the teacher. (laughs) I've never grown out of Billy as far as my family is concerned, but I'm more comfortable with it when it's prefaced with Uncle Billy, because that's what all my nieces and nephews call me, even some of my adult nieces and nephews who are my age, but I'm still Uncle Billy.
0: We like that. I know you as Billy, but tell me about your professional name. (laughs)
1: Warren was my choice when I got my equity card back in 82, I think it was. Um, The name William Watson was already taken by an equity actor. And I wasn't going to choose William anyway, but the lady sitting behind the desk said, I'm sorry, we have a William already, so what will your stage name be? And I said, let's go with Warren, because that's my middle name, named after my father, and she said to me, Warren Watson, that sounds like a very successful name, so here I am.
0: <laughs> That's a great story, <laughs> Billy. Now, to all of our podcast listeners, Billy Watson is an actor. He has a long journey in that business, and we'll get more to that but an equity card is earned by an actor for his ability to join the union so he may act on stage. Billy, let's start with your story. Where were you born?
1: I was born in Dallas. Whoa! Grew up in Oak Cliff. Oak Cliff? My street in Oak Cliff, my block in Oak Cliff no longer exists. Interesting. It has been torn down, demolished gone, and that makes me very sad. I lived in this one block, three different houses for 15 years, so my whole childhood was spent in the 900 block of Melba in Oak Cliff, which is now a part of the Tyler Street Methodist Church parking lot, I think.
0: Oh, so for our Google Map people, Melba Street does no longer exist, but the name of the church again, Billy?
1: Uh, Tyler Street Methodist.
0: Tyler Street Methodist. And this is in Oak Cliff, and Oak Cliff is a suburb of Dallas.
1: Right across the Trinity. Melba Street still exists. There are eight blocks of Melba Street, but the 900 block where I lived is the one that was demolished.
0: Oh, and you wrote a book about that block, did you not?
1: I did, call Writer's Block, because I was so sad when I saw that it no longer existed. I decided to pay tribute by recalling every house, all of the three houses I lived in on that street, and then I gave myself the challenge of trying to remember who lived in all of the other houses on both sides of that 900 block of Melba. Some of them I drew blanks on, but some of them I can still see the people today. I remember their names, and I tried to recall uh, my life on that block of Melba um, in in the little book that I put together.
0: And it's called, the name of the book again, please, Billy? Writer's Block. Writer's Block. Very nice. (laughs) Very, very nice. Now, uh, where did you
1: go to high school, Billy? I went to... uh, John H. Reagan Elementary School on Melba, I went to Griner Junior High for freshman year, then I went to Sunset High, and it was, it is in far west Dallas, what was far west at that time, no longer is it far west, but it was named Sunset, I think, because of being in the western part of Oak Cliff, And you could see a beautiful sunset there every night.
0: Oh, I like that story. Now, you went to high school, Sunset High School. Were you the lions,
1: tigers, or bears? (laughs) We were the sunset bisons. The
0: sunset (laughs) bisons. (laughs) And
1: one of the most interesting stories about the bisons was we had a real bison head mounted in our hallway.
0: A, A bison head in the hallway.
1: In the hallway. And we paid homage to it. Uh, so much so that the voice of one of the teachers, and at that time, many students didn't know who the teacher was that was becoming the voice of the Sunset Bison. But that voice would speak in a very deep, aggressive tone. He would give courage to the football team. He would even make predictions about what the score was going to be. And of course, the Sunset Bisons were going to win. We didn't every time, but we were purple and white. And we were very proud of the fact that Linda Darnell was a graduate from my school. The
0: great actress, Linda Darnell.
1: She went there before I did with my sister. And my sister knew her then. Her name was Monetta Darnell, and her mother took her to Hollywood when she was 16, got her a screen test, which she passed, but then they sent her back to Texas to get to be a year older. Right. She went back to Hollywood and made all of those films. During my junior year, she came back. And we had a pep rally for Linda Darnell.
0: Oh, isn't that great? She was on
1: stage, and I was hanging out of the balcony with such a crush on her. (laughs) She was dressed in purple with a white ermine hat. It was in the winter. Oh. And her English teacher even read a poem that she had written when she was a student. Oh my God. I had a crush on Linda forever after that.
0: So, Linda Darnell went to Sunset High School. Is Sunset High School still open in Dallas?
1: It is. It's oh. still open, uh, going strong, I understand. Of course, the neighborhood population has changed greatly. And the last time I went over there, um, they had fences around it. That I had never seen before. Uh, and all that schools made me
0: sad. Now uh, all schools tend to have fences around them. Yeah. Now it's the society we live in, Billy. And the bison voice—a voice would come out of the bison head in the lobby of the high school.
1: Oh, yes, and everyone would stand in awe. In fact, we could hear it in the classrooms. Oh, okay. It came through the PA system. So
0: the uh, announcements uh, through the PA came through the uh, bison head. Well,
1: the announcements were separate, and then the principal would announce a word from the sunset bison. And then we would hear the voice of Mr. Johns, the Spanish teacher, but at the time we didn't know it was him. Oh, Mister Johns, the Spanish teacher, right, was right. the voice of the Sunset Bison. He was, and he gave me my love for the Spanish language, which I went on to take four years of in high school, three years in high school, one in junior high, and then in college as well.
0: Excellent, excellent. That. That. Uh, and where did you go
1: to college, Billy? I went to SMU my first year on a Sears-Roebuck scholarship.
0: Sears-Roebuck, the the, the store, the the, the department store. In those
1: days, they gave a $350 scholarship to each high school for a senior whose grades were very good, Mm -hmm. and I had told my advisor that I was not going to college because my mother couldn't afford it. My father died when I was young, Mm -hmm. younger, and I was going to go to court reporter school. Oh, okay. And she said, but you're a terrible typist. (laughs) And I said, but I'm very good at shorthand, and I'll be all right. She said, no... I don't think so, sign this. I didn't know what I was signing, actually. And it was an application for a scholarship. Through the Sears? Yes, and she came back later and said, congratulations, you have won the Sears Roebuck scholarship. And I said, really? And she said, yes, you can take this amount of money, $350, and use it in any school you want to go to. So I chose SMU, and I had to go... On the trolley car all the way across the Trinity yes. to the side of town where SMU was, which I knew nothing about. That was North Dallas.
0: Now it was North Dallas at the time, yes. And yes. I
1: was so excited about being on the SMU campus. I had a 7 o'clock AM history class in a Quonset hut because SMU was under construction then for new buildings, and we met in this little Quonset hut. Everybody wore their coats. The teacher even wore his overcoat and gloves in class because it was cold in those Quonsets at 7 o'clock, three mornings a week.
0: Well, let me, Billy, let me explain to our podcast listeners what a Quonset hut is. It's a uh, semicircular building that's... Uh, pretty pretty much prefab and usually has aluminum roofing on it, and they can be put up pretty quickly. During uh, World War II, uh, these were built pretty fast, and SMU had Quonset huts on their campus. Now, the SMU, what was the mascot of
1: the SMU? The SMU mascot was a uh- A pony, a Mustang. The Mustang. The SMU Mustang. (laughs) And you know who was a cheerleader at SMU when I was there? Aaron Spelling.
0: Aaron Spelling. Aaron
1: Spelling. He was so popular. He was this little guy who wore glasses, but everybody liked his persona, and he was a cheerleader. And uh, I looked at him with great admiration, along with Doak Walker, who was the star of the SMU Mustangs at that time. Uh,
0: the football player, right. Doak Walker, and right. I believe there is a college football award that is awarded every year, uh, named after Doak Walker.
1: I think so. I, and his father went on to become a uh, superintendent of Dallas Public Schools. Oh, And when I came back years later, Uh, To teach in Dallas, Uh, he welcomed me along with my former high school principal, uh, Robert H. McKay, who was then an administrator, Mm -hmm. and this was in the... um, I came back to teach in Dallas in 1959, and I had graduated in 1948, so a lot of years lapsed. Right, right, right.
0: Now, how long were you at SMU? You told me a very interesting story where you went after that. I went
1: there only one year, and I had heard about a school in South Carolina, Bob Jones University, which Bob was Jones University. A very religious school. And my mother didn't want me to leave her side, but she knew I would be in good hands at this religious school. So I took an all-night bus from Dallas to Greenville, South Carolina.
0: Greenville, South Carolina, Bob Jones University. Uh Uh, Billy, did you get the calling at a young age to attend this religious school?
1: Uh, My calling was to, to explore the theater department. I had gotten past the ministerial calling years before. My father was a Baptist minister. Oh! He died when I was nine. After his death, my mother proudly told everyone that I was going to father in, follow in my father's footsteps and be a Baptist minister. Until one day, publicly, I announced to her, I'm not going to be a preacher. I'm going to be a movie star. And she never said anything again about my becoming a preacher.
0: (laughs) So, you knew at a young age you were going to become a movie
1: star. I thought. I never did, but I thought. Well, Billy,
0: we have a dissenting opinion. You are a star. You are a star. And our podcast listeners will enjoy uh, hearing Billy's story as we continue. Billy and I are going to take a quick break here while we enjoy a little sip of Dr. Pepper. Mm. Bill, There you go, Billy. <laughs>
1: Ten, two, and four. Mm. <laughs>
0: Folks, we're sitting here in, the, excuse me, in the Possum Trot Studios here in awesome Austin, Texas. Th- thank you for listening. We are in the middle of a interview with Warren Watson. He goes by Billy, and he truly is a movie star. As we proceed in our uh, interview with him, uh, you will see see how his life uh, developed to be to pursue his dream. Billy. You went to Bob Jones University and where was this again?
1: Greenville, South Carolina. Greenville, South Carolina. Beautiful, beautiful location. Uh the springs there were glorious. The mountain laurel in the mountains, unbelievable.
0: Mhm. I
1: loved the whole atmosphere of that part of the South, which I had never been in, the Southeast.
0: Um, Very interesting. How would you even hear about Bob Jones University living in Dallas, Texas?
1: Through Youth for Christ, which I attended every Saturday night Mm -hmm. with young people from my church in Dallas, the Davis Street Baptist Church, which was never on Davis Street. That's the interesting (laughs) thing about that church, (laughs) where I met my wife and where we were married, and the church still stands Mm -hmm. on Tyler Street, not Davis Street, but it's still, it's now a a Spanish-speaking church, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but we were married there. Uh, that's where I grew up. I mm-hmm. went to church there. Mm-hmm. And now I've forgotten what you asked me. Uh,
0: this I just asked you if you're enjoying yourself. <laughs> <laughs> you were a little nervous when we got here. How do you feel now that we're doing this podcast?
1: I feel great. What's in the Dr. Pepper? <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Pepper.
0: <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, you graduated from Bob Jones University, With a degree in...
1: Interpretative speech. Speech. They did not have a degree in acting because, I guess, of their principles at the time. Mm -hmm. There was no degree in acting. There was a degree in theater production, Mm -hmm. but not in acting. So my degree was in the oral presentation of prose, poetry, drama, anything that can be read aloud. And I really got a good appreciation for all kinds of literature, realizing that the reader is sharing the experience of the writer with an audience. It's not an act. You're not performing, but you're drawing the audience into the literature.
0: Yes, yes. And Billy, uh, you have a terrific voice. Terrific voice! Uh, you did you develop this voice through college and over the years? Uh, did you have a Texas twang? And all of a sudden you're in uh, in Bob Jones University? Did they correct it, or you? This is your natural voice.
1: When I went to Bob Jones, my radio speech teacher was named Robert Pratt, and he was a Southerner, but he didn't sound like one. Mm-hmm. And he started uh, working on me. He said, you are very Southern, and we don't want to take the South out of you, but you have to have a mid-American speech if you want to make it as an actor. Okay. So he worked with me a whole lot in pronunciation, in trying to remove the drawl and the nasal quality that Southerners Texans particularly have in their voice and either don't realize it or don't mind it. So I did work on that. Oh, good. But even in later years in New York when I auditioned, many times directors would say, now tell me what part of the South you're from. Mm -hmm. So you can't take the South, all of it, out of the boy. Out of the
0: boy, yes, (laughs) yes. Now, uh, after Bob Jones, uh, you mentioned something about returning to Dallas to teach.
1: What did you teach? Well, that was a long time later because I stayed at Bob Jones for my master's degree. Okay, Two years working on that. And I did research. Instead of a thesis, you had to do research and create a monodrama that you would produce and be in, uh, designing the costumes and everything. And I chose the Revolutionary War and was able to use... A portion of uh, the play called—I can't remember the name of the play now. I will in a minute. Um,
0: many years ago, Billy. But you're doing quite well. Many
1: years ago, about the, about the Revolutionary War, I played the characters of George Washington. Okay. Also of General Howells, who was a real general,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and then I created four or five fictional characters uh, around the incident of Valley Forge. Very good. And uh, this was what I did for my master's degree at Bob Jones. When I left there, I went into the Army because the Army was waiting to draft me. Mm -hmm. I had been deferred from the draft since I was 18.
0: Mm -hmm. Because you were in college, right? I was
1: now 23. A master's degree in hand, but I went into the Army and went to good old Fort Bliss. Out in El Paso, where Out Doug El the Paso, neighbor is from. I yes. think we've talked about this. Loved Fort Bliss, had a great time in basic training, met uh, people there, one of whom is still my best friend. Mm-hmm. I called him yesterday. He lives in La Jolla, California. Very nice. From there, I went to uh, San Antonio, to second uh, six weeks of basic training. Then I went overseas, and I was in Germany for the next year and a half.
0: Oh, very good. And had
1: a wonderful experience there. My wife came and lived with me in Germany. We lived on the economy because I was not an officer or even a sergeant, and we traveled in Europe, which I would have probably never been able to do on my own. When I came back from Uh, overseas, this was 1956, I started, I, I moved to Chicago, because I thought, the only thing I know how to do is teach, but I want to do something else, so my wife and I pulled out of Dallas, moved to Chicago, had an adventure there for three years, where I worked at Marshall Field and Company, And my wife worked for the American Bible Society on Michigan Avenue. We met every day after work, had dinner, went to a play or a film. And in those days, Broadway shows were starting their tours across the country. And Chicago was one of the first stops. Sure, then
0: they would go to Broadway. They would start around the country. No,
1: no, these weren't tryouts. These were shows that had been on Broadway oh, already, I but were going on tour after maybe a long Broadway run. Oh, I see. But in those days, a lot of the stars stayed with the show. So I got to see some of the stars, including Shirley Booth, in a play called Desktop. Okay. Was it De- no, The Desk Set. Desk Set. That was Set. the name of the play, yes. yes. Also, um, um, Raisin in the Sun okay uh the original cast from raisin in the sun all right oh um i saw judy garland in concert okay while we were in chicago many wonderful plays uh uh lynn fontan and alfred lunt Right. right yes in a play called the great sebastians that was written especially for them okay and i was a stage door johnny in those days My wife and I stood at the stage door to watch them come out, and she was very fragile. She had to be helped into the car. I'm told her eyesight was very bad then. You would have never known this on stage. Really? Many, many good theater experiences in Chicago. Right. So we had happy years there, but after the first year in retailing, I knew I wanted to go back into teaching. So I wrote to Dallas, and they said, come and visit us the next time you're here. And I did, and they hired me for the following teaching year.
0: At what school, Billy?
1: At North Dallas High School. The North Dallas Bulldogs. <laughs> no bisons, Bulldogs.
0: North Dallas High School. <laughs> oh, that's funny, Billy. And what subject were you teaching when you got back to Dallas?
1: Well, the principal, Mr. Whittlesey, met me and said, We're so glad to have you, young man. We haven't had a speech department in quite a while. And he said, But you have to teach English here until you build up a speech program, so you have one speech class and four English classes. And I said, English? I'm not very good in grammar. And he said, Oh, they're just sophomores, you can handle them. (laughs) I was a page ahead of them in grammar, but I enjoyed the literature. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. And I did a lot of oral stuff with them. Mm -hmm. They learned to read aloud. Right. And I was so proud of my students and my theater department there. I created a theater theater program, and I was there for 10 years.
0: At North Dallas right. High School, right. and they were the Bulldogs. Mm-hmm. They were the
1: Bulldogs, and still are.
0: Still are. <laughs> <laughs> and you started the uh, speech department and the uh, theater department at North Dallas High School.
1: Also, I was kind of early in the th- uh, Re- reader's theater movement because I started a group there We started out with scripts in hand, but it was also choral speaking, which got to be very cliche, but in the day there, I found it was a wonderful way for timid, shy students or even students with slight speech impediments to be integrated into some kind of performance. And we called ourselves the Indie Speakers for North Dallas, and we did... Um, literature that we selected, or we arranged and created our own scripts, and we did shows all over the city, and we sort of put North Dallas on the map because it wasn't winning. The Bulldogs weren't winning any football games in those years, <laughs> <laughs> but they were doing well in speech and theater. They did. In my my one-act play, a contest that's still big in Texas went all the way to state my second year of teaching at North Dallas. And I was, I couldn't believe it. And I said to my wife, I don't want to keep going with this. What happens if we go to state? She said, oh, I'll go with you. It'll be all right. So we left our little son in care of my sister and she and some other parents went down and the state contest was the thrill of my life as a as a high school teacher, and of course, of my little North Dallas students. Yes. We didn't win, but we were in the finals. We were one of five plays from all over Texas that got to the state finals.
0: Right. Now, Billy, what was the name of that program that you installed there at North Dallas to get people to get your students uh, interested in reading. You used a term there uh, or for oral speech. You used a term. Well,
1: Reader's Theater. Reader's th- Theater. Yeah, okay. and it became a big thing in oral interpretation. When I got to college teaching, I went to many oral interpretation conventions and contests all over Northwestern in New York in uh, Chicago, yes, is a very big at that time, had a very big oral Interp program headed by Leela Heston, Charlton Heston's sister. Oh And she was a war horse in the oral Interp field. Yes. and it was a, whole, a rather new field at that time. And I was so glad to introduce my students to literature through performing it, but not acting it, sharing it with your listeners.
0: Beautiful story, Bill, a beautiful story. Now, uh, you had once told me that you adhere to a speech type of lessons. Uh, Linkletter,
1: Lester. Uh, Arthur Linklater, yes. Linklater. No, uh, no, that was Kristen Linklater. She was one I worked with after I worked with Arthur Lessig. Arthur Lessig was in the New York area, and he established a great and innovative and rather radical approach to voice improvement. Which had never been a lot of fun to teach. Speech pathology has been around for a long time, right? And in high school at the time, and in college I was in college by then uh, I was teaching voice improvement, a course called voice and Diction. But it was I was approaching it from a very kind of rigid work ap- approach, and Lessig had a whole different approach to recognizing the qualities of the human voice, all of the things that put the human voice together, and what you could do to improve your voice. So his system was really new and innovative at the time, and I met him in 1970 or 71.
0: What was his name again, please, Billy?
1: Arthur Lessig, L-E-S-S-E-C, And he has a wonderful speech book out called Training, was it Training the Speaking Voice? I can't remember the name of it now. I still have two copies of it. Mm -hmm. They're the the, uh, weather-worn copies that I taught from. But if you can believe it, breathing, articulation, diction, resonance, all of those things, he approached from a fun way. And I incorporated that in my teaching and I loved all of the years I taught voice and diction after that. When I got to Richland, I could have offered five classes of voice and diction. But it was so much work for me the way I proceeded to teach it that I didn't want to teach that many. I wanted to keep teaching public speaking as well as oral interpretation. Right. But uh, Lessig's plan, his whole system uh, was magnificent. I owe him so much the next year I studied with Kristen Linklater up in uh Fredonia, New York. Kristen
0: Linklater. Linklater yes. Later. Uh-huh.
1: And she was I think Scottish. I'm not sure. She had a different approach altogether and I learned stuff from her, but uh, Lessick was the the one who gave me my inspiration to make voice and diction a happy experience for students. In fact, and one way we did this, and then we can move on, every consonant in our language is a musical instrument, and he named them all. The M is the violin, the N is the viola, and we learned as students of his to play the musical instruments that are represented in the sounds that we make. No, we didn't literally play the instruments, but we pretended to play the instruments with our voice and the way we articulated. And so it was no longer a chore to say, put that final N on that word or no one will hear it. No, instead we would say, play the N violin there. And when you say none... Let the audience hear that in. You're playing the violin the way you vibrate that sound. And every every consonant uh, in our language was associated with a musical instrument. So that's why I loved his, his teaching method.
0: And that name again is? Arthur Lessig. L- Arthur Lessig.
1: He's mm-hmm. been dead many years now. The second year I worked with him, Uh, on the campus in um, uh, another little New York town that I can't remember now because this was back in the 70s, not Fredonia. That's where I worked with Kristen Linklater. But we met in a gym. We never went to a classroom, and we ran a track. Mm Mm-hmm. As part of our warm-up for our classes. Voice training to strengthen the
0: diaphragm.
1: And he led the pack on the track field, and he was 80 then. And he died, I think, in his 90s. Running on the track, <laughs> <laughs> probably he would have been happiest there oh, really, really he would have
0: been that 's a beautiful story a now,
1: great teacher the probably the greatest teacher in my life
0: oh that 's very interesting, Billy, and thank you for that wonderful story now in your uh, your past moment here, you just mentioned something about richland, Richland Community College in Dallas, Texas. please tell us that portion of
1: your story. Okay. Richland is one of the six or seven campuses uh in the Dallas Community College system. The first one being El Centro, which opened in downtown Dallas in the old Sanger Brothers department store. Mm-hmm. The the building designers got all kinds of uh accolades for creating a college campus on nine or 10 floors of department store. Okay. I went there the third year it was opened. I left high school teaching, which had become a real uh, challenge for me because of several things and I wanted to move on. I did move on to El Centro where I taught three years. Then I went to uh, Richland, for the rest of my college teaching career. It was its second or third year then on the lovely campus that it has now where Richland and Garland and Dallas all come together.
0: And and you taught uh, college speech.
1: Yes, I taught oral interpretation, Mm -hmm. public speaking, Mm -hmm. voice and diction. And That's where the voice and diction, my, my chairman would say, don't you want to offer some more voice and diction classes? We could fill them all. And I would say no, because I had the students each do a cassette tape for their homework, and I had to listen to all of those tapes and evaluate them, and it was work. Right. So I taught one class at, during the day and one class at night, mm-hmm. and the rest were other, other uh, public speaking, et cetera.
0: Uh, that's an excellent story. Now, you had stated that uh, Bob Jones University did not have a theater program, and that's what gravitated you towards speech, and that became your career at, uh, at North Dallas High School, and then El Centro, and then Richland. When did you transfer into the acting
1: world? Well, uh, Bob Jones still had an active theater program, And that's where I got my experience doing Shakespeare. They did a lot of classics, a lot of Shakespeare, but not only Shakespeare. They also had a tremendous uh, fine arts program, uh, opera series in which they brought stars in, even from New York, to do the major roles in opera, so it was a fine arts mecca in those days, and it may still be, I don't know, Mm -hmm. but I got a lot of acting experience there. I had a couple of wonderful uh, drama teachers there, and we didn't do a lot of contemporary theater because of all of the Uh, sexuality in a lot of plays.
0: And this being Bob Jones University,
1: a religious school. Very religious, more so than any other school around at that time, of course. And I think their policies have changed a little bit, their policies and practices.
0: So you were teaching at Richland uh, Community College there in the Dallas area, and you're teaching speech. Uh, What started you to do uh, uh, acting? Their richland.
1: Well, all the time I was teaching, even in high school in Dallas, I was doing community theater oh. because I always felt like I'm an actor at heart, but I make my living as a teacher. Mm-hmm. And yet now, all of these years later, I look back on my teaching years as the happiest, most creative years of my life because when you teach, you are student centered. When you're an actor, as you know, you have to be very self-centered. Right, right. And I love the investment I made in so many students' lives, mm-hmm. some of whom went on, as I've told you, to do work on Broadway.
0: Yes, yes.
1: So uh, I, w- I was doing theater at an old theater on uh, Knox Street called the Knox Street Playhouse, yes. founded by Pearl Wallace Chapel. Okay. She was an old a fixture in the Dallas theater world. Mm -hmm. And she had a community theater there. I did several plays there. I did plays with Dallas Repertory Theater. Mm -hmm. I worked at Theater 3. Theater 3, yes. And I was doing all of that while I was teaching Mm -hmm. uh, in college in those days. But in high school, when I worked for uh, Pearl Wallace Chapel in the Knox Street Theater, and also... I did a play with a group that's still in existence in Dallas. They're called the Pocket, Pocket Sandwich Theater.
0: Yes, And yes. they were
1: called the Emporium Players when I started with them. Yes. Joe Dickerson was their founder. Yes. And he specialized in um, melodrama. Oh, yes. And he was producing The Drunkard, and he cast me in the lead. <laughs> And I said, why? And he said, because I've been doing this play so long, I don't want to do it anymore, and I want to see you play the Squire. Uh Doug, it was one of the most frightening experiences of my life because I had never done a lot of improvisational stuff. Yes. And, of course, this was a script, but the audience participates. Yes,
0: yes, yes, melodrama. And they
1: were throwing not only popcorn at me, but little metal... Uh, ashtrays. Oh, yes, yes. And I told him more than once, Joe, I can't go out there again. This is scaring me. And he said, you don't know how funny you are in this role. Go ahead and be comfortable ad-libbing. <laughs> and it was a while before I started having a good time yes. as Squire, whatever his name was, in The Drunkard. That was my first paying job. Joe did the most wonderful thing. None of us were equity actors, Right, of right. And he figured up what profit the show had made when it closed, and he divided that among every actor. And I got a check for, I think it was $100 plus. Why I didn't save that check after it was canceled and sent back to me, I don't know. I should have it in a frame today. But that was my experience. It is now, the director is... um, someone who was his set designer, Rodney Dobbs. Yes. And he has the theater that is now on Mockingbird called the Pocket Sandwich Theater. Okay. Joe chose that name right after we did uh, our play of the drunkard, uh, They stopped being the Emporium Players and became Pocket Sandwich. Pocket Sandwich. And it's still running. It's still (laughs) running. They do regular shows there all the time. And my picture is on the wall there.
0: Your picture is on the wall. From
1: my days in the drunkard.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Billy, that's a great story. To our podcast listeners, we are interviewing... Warren Watson, the New York Dallas actor, and he, we know him as Billy, a longtime friend of mine. And now what we're going to do is we're going to go into a, uh, a, a story told by Billy at how we met. This is a very interesting story because it altered the course of my life. Billy, how did we meet?
1: Well, Doug, I went to an audition for UT Dallas production of uh, Macbeth.
0: UT Dallas being University University of Texas Texas at at Dallas. Dallas.
1: Mm -hmm. And the production was? Macbeth and uh, the Gillespie's were in charge. He was the director. I can't remember his first name. Maybe you can. His wife, Carolyn, was the actress who played Lady Macbeth. They had quite a coup in that they had... Uh, contracted uh, Richard Wordsworth, who was the great-great, maybe another great-grandson of William Wordsworth. And he was a white-haired gentleman at that time. English. English, who was playing Macbeth. And I believe at the same time or soon after they did Twelfth Night, in which he played Malvolio. Oh, really? I and I saw that. him in that there. And I can't remember if those plays were running at the same time. I don't think they were.
0: No, I don't but think he so. He
1: did play Malvolio, and I think it was at UT, because, and it was after we had done our show, I know. In Macbeth. Anyway, we met there. What role did you have, Billy? I was Banquo. And you were one of the murderers. Who, first murderer. First murderer, because you had more lines than the second murderer, I think.
0: Yes, and first murderer, <laughs> <laughs> as I learned later on in life, is a legendary role, because that is what is the title of it, first murderer. And every
1: night I got to... What did I get to do, Billy? Well, I think you strangled me, or else you used... A fake dagger. I can't remember which it was.
0: <laughs> yes. In the play, first murderer is uh, uh, conscripted by Macbeth to get rid of uh, Banquo. Every night I jumped off the stage and stabbed Banquo. But what was more important uh, was uh, in the dressing room. Please tell, tell your side of the story.
1: Doug, I don't remember my side of the story of the
0: dressing room. <laughs> what happened in there? <laughs> Not what you would think. <laughs> the cast for Macbeth at the UT Dallas, University of Texas Dallas production of Macbeth, was a large cast. Uh, a lot of men, and the dining, the dressing room was quite small, so we were all crammed in together. And... Billy, Banquo, and I sat next to each other as we applied our costumes and makeup. That is the be- was the beginning of our, uh, uh, of our friendship that has lasted many, many years since 1981. And it was during this conversation sitting next to Billy, Billy started telling his stories of New York City. Billy, your turn. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, by 81, I had gone up to New York several times while I was still teaching at Richland. Uh, Christmas time was one of my first times up there, and I saw as many shows as I could on Broadway. Uh, then in 81, I had the pleasure of seeing three of my students young men that I had helped get scholarships to uh, Arkansas Art Center in Little Rock, which was a wonderful art and drama school. Three of them got scholarships to go there, and all three boys ended up in New York. One working with the directing of Ocalcutta, one in the original chorus of the first production of Sweeney Todd and one as dance captain for the uh, little musical Ain't Misbehaving. So I had all three boys on Broadway at one time and I remember telling you that the following year I was going up to New York because I was taking a sabbatical from teaching and I was going to be up there uh, over a year and Who knows? I think you followed me up there, didn't you? Uh,
0: It was your encouragement, Billy, uh, sitting next to you for those two months while we did Macbeth, sitting there in the uh, dressing room, uh, that I could go on up to uh, New York City for a year. That was plan A, go on up for a year, add that to my resume of life, uh, from living in Dallas, and enjoy the New York experience and gain in my acting a career, come back to Dallas and get m- more and better work in the Dallas area as an actor. So it was your encouragement listening to your tales of coming up to New York City, and I took the jump and I did it.
1: Okay, and today, do you thank me or hate me for that? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Billy, you altered my life. I am very, very grateful for that, uh, for our friendship, and for your wise words to encourage a young man to go for a dream. Just like you told your mother at a young age, you were not going to be a minister, but you were going to be a movie star. (laughs) I never in my uh, wildest dreams thought that I would be an actor. A kid from El Paso ending up in New York City, on stage, film, uh, commercials. It did happen for me because of you.
1: Thank you, Doug, for those words. I think I made a good investment in your career because you were up there about 30 years. 32 years, Billy. Okay. And
0: then I moved back to awesome Austin, Texas. All Texans come home and that's where I am here in Doug the Neighbor in the Possum Trot Studios performing this podcast for you. And our today's guest today is Warren Watson, better known as Billy. Billy, You have been on stage in New York City. Your move to New York City uh, was very productive. You did plays, movies, and shipboard performances. (laughs) Is that not true?
1: I was very fortunate in that one of the students that I mentioned, uh, who was my student at North Dallas High School, uh, who got the scholarship to go to... um, School in Little Rock, uh, made a very successful life for himself uh, on Broadway and in New York and gave me my opportunity to get my equity card, as we said, by working on *O Calcutta*. And sadly, he passed away just a couple of months ago, uh, but I owe... Um, my New York career to him.
0: Ron Nash. Ron Nash. And I owe my career to you. So you had mentioned earlier that your life as a teacher is student-centered, not self-centered. So to watch these three gentlemen and myself uh, get to uh, New York City because of your urging and teaching is a beautiful thing.
1: Well, uh, I'm very pleased to have been a part of that. You know, it makes me happy today to look back on you. But be sure that you let your listeners know that I'm still in New York and that I have maintained an apartment up there for all of these years, a rent-controlled apartment on the east side. I spend long summers up there. Last year, I was up there five months. I plan to go back in June this year and... uh, I love the city, I'm not an actor there anymore, but I participate in everything I can by seeing as much a theater, mostly off-Broadway now, but um, New York is either my first or second home. It's my first home when I'm there, and then when I'm in Dallas, Dallas is my first home, but I truly guess I have the best of two worlds.
0: I think it's called six and six. Six months <laughs> Dallas, six months New York.
1: Fifty-fifty, yes. Fifty-fifty, six and six.
0: (laughs) Now, a couple of things here. Uh, You acted in plays. You acted in movies. Tell us about working on shipboard. What does that mean (laughs) for an actor?
1: There was a, a, a company called Theater at Sea. They no longer exist, but other companies do, which hire mainly young people for musicals that they do on cruise ships. But Theater at Sea wanted to do drama as well. And Ron Nash, my student, uh, at that point uh, worked on the ships going to various parts of the world. He did this for probably 20 years with uh, the company that I just mentioned, uh, Theater at Sea. And uh, I was able to go along with him on four cruises only, four different years. He hired me to be his assistant and gave me a role with Ed Asner in a play called Boys of Autumn. uh, Boys in Autumn, it was called, where Ed Asner and I played Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn as old men. Oh, that's very interesting. It was rather a dark play Mm -hmm. uh, and never made it to Broadway, of course. Ed was wonderful to work with, a truly big old teddy bear who didn't want to rehearse. He just wanted to have fun on ship and we rehearsed as much as I could get him to and when we did our one performance on ship because all of these actors were contracted to go along on board ship and to perform one evening on the ship and maybe do another evening of talent when the whole group did a review. Yes. And Ed's assignment was to do this play. Actually, um, someone else was scheduled to do the role that I was going to do. He was on the cruise and he was a named star and he chose not to do it. And that's when Ron used his influence with the producer and said, you don't have to bring another name in. My friend can do this role. So I got billing with Ed Asner, and it was my first cruise. We went to Alaska. And I also found myself sitting with the stars up in first class on the plane. And I said to Ron, He was sitting in the back. I said, why is this happening? And he said, because you're one of the stars. Be quiet and enjoy it. (laughs) And I was sitting across from Patricia Neal, and I couldn't wait to meet her because she was known as the first lady of theater at sea. She did all of these cruises up until, almost until her death. And she was in a wheelchair on the cruises with me. And I... Uh, rolled her chair out on the stage when she would do... Her performance evening became reading from her book. Yes. And I think it was called My Life. I can't remember the title now, but she reveals all about her love affair with Gary Cooper. Yes, and yes. And she loves to talk about that. Really? And that was her evening. Uh, performance on stage, but she didn't want it to ever interfere with her bingo. She loved to play bingo on ship, and she got to bingo every day, no matter what time it was. And her work was kind of secondary because they had other things for the stars to do, like they had autograph parties for them and that sort to of thing. To
0: mingle with the to bingo with the. Uh, People on the on the
1: boat. Oh, they had groupies. Many people who followed them and did these tours that they knew theater at sea would be on.
0: Right, right. And
1: I got to meet so many of those people uh, in their twilight years, including Kitty Carlisle. Whoa, really! What a charmer she was. And she, in her nineties, I think she was ninety by then, was doing her cabaret act, mm-hmm. in which she reflects on her life. Yes, And I was so, I escorted her on stage too. She didn't need a helper, but uh, it was kind of a formality Pre- to presentation. escort star yeah. out yes, yes. in my tux and yeah. all. So I felt like I was starring too. Shirley Jones, the one I got to meet. Uh, just a lot of of people with big names, Donna McKechnie from the original chorus line. Yes, Donna McKechnie. yes. she would go on these trips as well. Mm -hmm. So I had so many memories of uh, all of those people that I got to work with and I got to know. And this was always through Ron.
0: And it was uh, on ship board and they would book you out of New York City.
1: Oh yeah, well no, um, once we flew all the way to Florida, and took a ship from there. This was for one of the Mediterranean cruises. Oh, very nice. And my first one to Alaska, we actually flew from um, L.A. I mean, we we took the ship at L.A. Mm -hmm. So I flew to L.A., stayed with relatives there. They took me to the ship, and I got aboard for my first cruise, and they handed me a mimosa when I walked on board. (laughs)